see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Welcome back to another episode of Ready for Close-Up. I'm joined again by Andy. Hi there, Andy. Hi, Sam. And unlike last time, we won't be talking about the best in cinema. Quite the opposite. We know we've all enjoyed movies we know are bad for some reason. Some might even be among our favorites. So this episode is dedicated to these guilty pleasure movies and why bad movies can be so bad they're good. We try to explain what makes them such a pleasure, what factors can make a bad movie a good one, and we've both picked our favorite guilty pleasure movie and argue what makes them so bad they're good. Andy will discuss a truly abysmal 60s cult drama, Valley of the Dolls, and me, Sam, a literal train wreck of a movie, The Cassandra Crossing from the 70s disaster era, double entendre intended. We've analyzed them thoroughly and prepared the best of the worst of these two gems, or well, underrated and uncut diamonds. And we will end with a plea for the continued appreciation of guilty pleasures, because lowbrow personal faves is what makes life worth living in the end, especially the ones we know are bad. So Andy, based on your scholarly expertise, how would you define guilty pleasure movies? I think in its most simple definition, a guilty pleasure movie is a movie you enjoy watching, despite being aware it's generally considered bad. So it's usually a lowbrow entertainment, very often failed movies that gained a cult following over the years. I think it can also be successful movies of a certain time that changed in terms of how they are perceived and how their quality is perceived, but then nostalgic reasons further fuel the guilty pleasure quality. I'm thinking of dance movies movies from the 80s like Dirty Dancing or Flashdance, they are often considered guilty pleasures even though the viewer and we all are aware that they might not be the best ones. And even though you could also argue that Dirty Dancing or Flashdance are not of low production quality or they were failed or unsuccessful. You know you watch a movie that is not good in the most common sense, but you enjoy it nonetheless. Guilty pleasures are often movies that one has seen multiple times and only through repeated viewings they earn their status. There is something attracting and fascinating about them, be it the topic, the style, the actors, the soundtrack, that links you to this movie. And as opposed to what we discussed last time, these movies vary vastly in what is perceived a guilty pleasure. So it's a very personal connotation what a guilty pleasure can be. For some people it's just a simple crappy movie, a stinker, but for yourself you, you like it. Absolutely, perfectly said. And I think often there's also been a year-long appreciation of these movies that often goes back to, to childhood endearment or fascination when we didn't quite know about the criteria what a good or a bad movie is or what high and low culture is. So we were much more enthusiastic about them, maybe because we didn't know better and in a way it's kind of a certain positive naivete. So when we then found out that they're considered stinkers, we might have adjusted to the grown-up world of film critics and reviewers and consider them suddenly bad, but deep in our heart we still enjoy them despite or because of their, for instance, hammy acting, the overdramatic score, the thick makeup or accents, the incongruent plot and the improbable dialogues. 
And in a way, they're often the movies that were our original sins, our initiation into the world of film. So lucky if it turns out those were seen as classics, but honestly, haven't we all started with blockbusters, cult films or stinkers rather than arthouse cinema? So, but what factors are at play in these types of movies that they are criticized yet appreciated and might even become cult favorites just because they're bad? Very often bad movies that are enjoyed and celebrated are branded as camp classics or campy movies. In its very definition, camp is an aesthetic style or a viewing sensibility that regards something as appealing because of its bad taste and ironic value. For movies to be camp, the intentions and the general tone of the movie need to be absolutely serious and earnest. And it's through the lens of the viewer that these serious movies turn into something ironic and fun to watch. And the fact that acting or storylines or situations are blown out of proportions create this divergence between earnest intention and comedic funny reception which makes it ultimately entertaining. And I think one example of such a movie that became a guilty pleasure, also a camp classic, is Flash Gordon from the 1980s. It's a so-called space opera about a football player who gets into space to fight the evil villain Ming the Merciless, played by Max von Sydow. But the story is completely forgettable because the costumes are out there. They're like super crazy, super 80s, amazing. The dramatic score from Queen is like... I'm sure you all heard it. And then the overacting, of course, the overacting from Max von Sydow. I mean, Ornella Muti plays a role and she has nothing on but a few pearls and sequins and these extravagant costumes and she gets tortured in a scene. Uh, Topol plays a Nazi professor and Timothy Dalton shows up in Greek tights. All these actually famous actors in this absolutely crazy nut house of a movie. It's, it's amazing. This sounds very much like some of my guilty pleasure favorites. For instance, Somewhere in Time that has the complete contradictory effect to what it intended to have. It's a 1980 romantic drama starring Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour that wants to be so quintessentially romantic it's absolutely preposterous. But at the same time it ends up being utterly devastating in the end because it just earnestly and consequentially executes the plot and uses over-the-top ingredients, for instance, a wonderfully sappy score by John Barry. Somewhere in time. Someday, in the past, he will find her. Or some disaster movies I've liked since I was a child that have somehow mastered this recipe of star power plus horrible incidents on planes, boats and trains so well you, you just go along for the ride despite or because of their obvious plot holes and, and bad has been acting. So we love the being bad of these guilty pleasure movies and we pine for their hammy dialogue and for their bad qualities. But today we've picked our all-time top favorites among the guilty pleasures. And I wanted to ask you, Andy, first of all, what, what's your story with Valley of the Dolls? I picked Valley of the Dolls because I think it was for me such a find a few years ago. It's not a childhood favorite in that sense. And I stumbled upon it, I think, we were searching for some movies or some actors down the rabbit hole of IMDb. And I started watching it and I was completely mesmerized how bad it was. And I really developed this passion for this movie being 
truly one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Valley of the Dolls is a movie drama from 1967, directed by Mark Robson, and chronicles the rise and fall of three young women in Hollywood and their problems with alcohol and drug abuse. The movie is based on the best-selling novel by Jacqueline Suzanne on, of the same name, which was a massive hit in the middle of the 60s. And I think the movie is such an interesting production story because initially the producers cast Judy Garland in an important supporting role, but due to her heavy alcohol problem at the time, she was unable to shoot. I think they started test shootings with her and had costume fittings, but in the end they had to fire her and replace her with Suzanne Hayward. For the three leading ladies, they cast soap opera starlet Barbara Perkins, famous for Peaking Place at the time, Patty Duke, who won an Oscar for her work in The Mirror worker just a few years ago at the age of 15 and she was starring in a sitcom after that and she was really keen to get into more mature roles so she saw the juicy Valley of the Dolls content as this gateway. And last but not least was the newcomer Sharon Tate who was then fairly unknown but was getting into the scene of Hollywood and she would shoot the same year uh, The Fearless Vampire Killers with Roman Polanski, fell in love with him, married and as we all know a few years later Later she made tragic headlines as the famous victim of the brutal murderers by the Manson clan. Barbara Perkins stars as the good girl Anne who leaves her hometown to make it in Broadway. On her way to fame she befriends beautiful Jennifer, played by Sharon Tate, who is just basically cast as a sex pot, and the ambitious and talented Neely O'Hara. Paddy Duke's character tries to get a coveted role from an older star, played by Susan Hayward. But it's so convoluted, it's a mess, and the problem starts already with Suzanne's novel. The novel itself spans from the 1940s to the 1960s, but the movie itself is set in the 60s. This results in an anachronistic depiction of stardom and the studio system. For example, in the studio system of the 40s, stars would be controlled by the studios. They would give them pills to keep them up or keep them skinny. So this is very influenced by real-life events uh, of Judy Garland, for example. But this doesn't make any sense in the 1960s. So, the, the, I mean, the setting, the costume, everything is 60s so this makes for really weird anachronistic vibes. The movie tries to depict the dangers of fame and the price one has to pay but the outcome is just so bad because you can never really grasp the destinies of our three heroines so to a large extent it's also because the movie piles all these calamities and, and destinies on these actresses but as an audience you never really connect with this so it's very confusing. There's just so much wrong with this movie that it's really easy to dismiss it as a stick for example, the, the male protagonists, so to speak, and love interests, they're not really distinguishable. So every time they, all the three main lead actresses, they have a love interest, but you confuse them because they all look like this somehow mixture of Dean Martin and Sean Connery. They all look the same. So, I mean, plot devices, like, like then one has a heart failure and one has cancer and then they fight for stage roles and then they have cat fights and all this pops up out of nowhere and it, there's never really... A great story arc or stories coming together and then also the title the dolls it's like an abbreviation of, of dolophine so of methadone like drugs and then the alcohol problems the girls pop these pills as if it's like smarties and it, it's acted out in the most stereotypical way possible it's like patio duke rolling in lingerie and, and then she grasps for the water and the water falls over and it's, it's so dramatic it's, it's really it's fun the songs they sing so that it's also 
since they are in Broadway and they're singing, they also have some songs in the movie, but the songs are awful and they're ridiculous. And I think the best example is Susan Hayward being this supposedly big, big Broadway star and she stands on the stage with this mobile turning around her and then she sings in a bad wig and in this silver dress. It's my yard, so I will try hard to welcome friends I have yet to know. Worst lyrics ever. Absolutely. Worst lyrics ever. For me, the selling point is clearly Paddy Duke as Neely O'Hara, because she's absolutely the star. The way she churns her way through every scene, and she's like so aggressive, and she screams. Every sentence she has, there's an exclamation point. She, she try, It's really, she tries to be dramatic and act dramatic and give some depth to it, but she spits out every word and as if she were going to battle. So it's just fun and hilarious, because it's so camp and over the top. And she she really comes across as an eager teenager who, who wants to play this big Hollywood diva who has problems. This is really what sells the movie for me, this mixture also between the real life of the actresses and the characters they play. It's a crappy film, without a doubt, and yet there is some deeper fascination that lies underneath. The troubled production history, which is very interesting. I think the highly camp delivery of dialogue, the acting of Hayward and Duke, and, and the 60s style, which is amazing but also trashy in a way and then the seemingly sleazy and scandalous topics I mean the Sharon Tate character then she has to go and do nudies in Europe and this is presented as a very <laughs> terrible destiny for her actress and it, it, it tries to be sexy but it's clearly not and um, it, it really tries to make this scandalization of Hollywood and, and stardom into something exciting and I think this movie makes it somehow a very interesting precursor to other movies movies and, and series in later stages and decades. So I think there are clearly references also to 80s soap operas like Dynasty, to Sex and the City later on, and it even spans the, the arch to, to reality television, actually, of the 2000s, like Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, where women throw drinks at each other and scream. So this joy of trash, I think, is really relevant in this in this movie and makes it such a fun to watch. And it's astounding and confusing at the same time how such a movie could have been made. <laughs> the plot lines had me like guessing all movie long what it was all about really and as we said before the songs were truly atrocious and the 60s style so completely all over the top. I don't think I've ever seen a movie that screams 60s so desperately and so much. You said it perfectly the acting was altogether hammy and the lines were almost made to be used later on you know for drag queens to throw them at each other and some repartee. So if you ask me, did I enjoy it because you made me watch it in preparation for this? I would say, hell no. <laughs> but in a way, I was in awe 
how so much talent could have been wasted and so little can come out and still I could see you know the cult appreciation and I felt entertained and amused at the same time at all its failings. There's so many amazing quotes in this movie that really dive into this camp gay sensibility of watching movies and also the fact that there were three Oscar winners in this movie. There's like Patty Duke, Susan Hayward, Lee Grant in a minor role and yet the movie is so trash it's amazing absolutely i was going to say there are some parallels you know in the casting decisions the star power of our two movies but i think my guilty pleasure favorite is a different animal because for one there are almost no great lines in that one and that's just due to the bad script and probably the international level of production so my ultimate guilty pleasure movie was probably the first disaster movie i saw starting a lifelong love for what that weird short-lived genre of the 1970s was but it was also a, a personal experience it was a father-son bonding moment because my dad allowed me to watch it even though it was late on Austrian television and its German title upon release was Treffpunkt Todesbrücke but of course the original title of this Italian German British co-production is The Cassandra Crossing It was produced by Lou Grade and Carlo Ponti, famously Sophia Loren's lifelong husband and mentor. And of course it stars Sophia Loren as a best-selling author alongside the veritable, well, mishmash of star names, has-beens, and who was that against? Like Richard Harris is there, he's blonde and in cakey makeup playing Sophia's ex, an award-winning doctor. There's Burke Lancaster as a sinister US Army colonel trying to cover up a biological weapons research project in neutral Switzerland. There's Bergman favorite Ingrid Tulin trying to get under Lancaster's skin in order to stop the catastrophe. There's Ava Gardner and her lover and Hollywood newbie at the time, Martin Sheen. There's O.J. Simpson, who became a disaster movie regular at the time. There's spaghetti western hero Lionel Stander. There's Hollywood almost star Alida Valli and method acting father Lee Strasberg, among many lesser knowns, as of people all traveling on the so-called transcontinental express between Geneva and Stockholm. Their problem is that one of the passengers, a Swedish terrorist, has escaped police after bustling into the army's bio lab and having infected himself in the process with a form of pneumonic plague. And now it's Lancaster and Tulin who try to contact the train and stop the train from becoming a traveling biological bomb. Unknown to everybody else, Lancaster also plans to let the train crash over an abandoned bridge in Poland, the so-called Cassandra Crossing. The railroad line hasn't been used for years, but the Polish government says it's been checked regularly. We can bring them into Janov on the other side of the Carpathians, through the Yablunkov Pass, over the Kosundorov Przezed Bridge, what they call the Cassandra Crossing in order to conceal the virus and kill everybody on board, while Loren and Harris try to stop the train at the same time from crossing over because they realize what's going on with this bridge thanks to a Holocaust surviving old man. And as you might have guessed, it's all overdramatic, a riveting thrill ride of a movie, additionally hammered in by one of composer Jerry Goldsmith's loudest score, somewhere between his Planet of the Apes, The Omen, and foreshadowing the big scores he would later write for Rambo and the Russia House. But I absolutely loved it, of course, at the time watching it. This overblown plot doesn't make much sense, but 
I mean, who has time to think? The geography, Swiss and European in this movie is completely off, famously with them filming the station scenes of Geneva in Basel and forgetting to cover up all the signs in the back. And the Cassandra Crossing, supposedly in Poland, clearly built rather by Gustav Eiffel in France. There's horrible back projection through most of the movie, which is three quarters set on the train. The colors are, you know, if Valley of the Dolls is atrociously 60s, this definitely is atrociously 70s, brown, beige, and yellow mostly. The acting is either over the top with Ava Gardner, I think, mostly drunk during filming. <laughs> Richard Harris, mostly loud and patronizing. And the presumed Holocaust survivor, Lee Strasberg, just single-handedly destroying the reputation of the method acting school he himself founded. So, <laughs> not to mention their supporting roles played by Harris' then-wife, Anne Turkle, who is both unable to sing and act. There's former Hollywood beauty Ali Davali, completely underused, under thick glasses. I don't know who had the idea of casting her in this minor, minor role. And I think Lancaster just giving us the most revolting, smeary version of a post-Watergate American official. So it's spectacular and fast at the same time, foreshadowing what director George Pankos made us later did with his brutish Rambo entry. It's a no-nonsense direction, so it's super serious for sure. And some of the action is surely spectacular, especially the aerial photography and the climbing scenes on top and on the side of the train. And it all comes together for a far too serious mix of thrill fest. I mean, there are hippies, there's terrorism, there's anti-Americanism, there are bioweapons and they rip off most great American disaster movies like Airport, Earthquake and The Towering Inferno while casting people from all possible movie markets just to get a profit from all these movie markets. There's just one thing I remember buying the poster for the Cassandra Crossing in German and there it says 12 Weltstars in einem 20 Millionen Dollar Film and it confused me completely <laughs> because they only name eight on the poster and even thinking hard I could come up with 12 but but there you go that's movie <laughs> propaganda for you still i find it strangely satisfying whenever i watch it and i just watched it yesterday again in preparation because it mixes these ingredients admirably badly and it seems so calculating it seems such a calculating mess but still rolls along so entertainingly and i think for me once the beautiful helicopter shot descends through the alpine clouds onto geneva to goldsmith truly pretty main theme i'm in guilty pleasure movie heaven, literally.
What did you think of the Cassandra Crossing when you watched it? I've seen it a while back. I, I was surprised how many decent actors could be cramped in such a crappy flick, I have to say. I think it's quite entertaining though, but I think for all the wrong reasons. I mean, Ava Gardner and Martin Sheen are lovers. Yeah, of course. I, I was just thinking before when when you wrote down the casting list that I think it's, it's interesting to see that these old Hollywood actresses like Ava Gardner, also Susan Hayward, in their later stage of their career they were really crammed into these rather trashy movies and you can clearly tell Gardner as you said she was tipsy and she was just doing it for the money. I think it's all over the place and you've seen all these actors in far better movies but still it's fun to watch. I think it makes for a fun movie night uh, if you have some some drinks and some friends <laughs> over and you watch it and everyone can comment on it and I think that's Cassandra Crossing is ideal for that because you can really poke fun at it. Every time there is a shot of that discrepit bridge or of Ava Gardner giving it a bad line once you drink a shot. And, and you're drunk in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> At the latest. What are your favorite ridiculous moments of the movie? Let's exchange favorite ridiculous moments for a while. I think one of my faves is the overdramatic breakdown by this guy Kaplan who has been to Cassandra Crossing before and they roll out this overtly sappy Holocaust reference just to make it more dramatic not for any sympathy for Holocaust survivors but just because it seemed topical at the time. Cassandra Crossing. I had her for an isolation camp just outside there. Oh, is that what they call it now? But that bridge couldn't exist there now. I can't go. Quite frankly, it's not my first choice either. God, it's scary. No! Another favorite is Ingrid Tulin being the moral consciousness of the movie and she gives a very dramatic final evaluation of Lancaster's colonel and of course he gives her a typical post-Watergate answer. My job was to contain this disease, not just the bacteria but the very idea of it. If you undo what I've done when you walk out of here, then those people really will have sacrificed their lives for nothing. I understand, Colonel. Completely. Remember you're a doctor, and a damn good one. Stay a doctor, please, for your own sake. I remember she had like this super white cakey makeup. This 70s camera on her face when she delivers this line is so great. And I think they tried to do a little they tried to do a little Bergman on her because the final shot of the two of them is really their eyes locking and she understanding that she cannot go out there and tell the press about what has happened because that will kind of make the sacrifice, as Lancaster calls it, of these people on the train who haven't really died, but he thinks they died. It will make that sacrifice worthless. Only you saw that. <laughs> <laughs> Most likely. And finally, of course, it's every line that Ava Gardner lazily delivers that's supposed to be big movie star of the day, but just ends up being flat. Don't look so cross, baby. You're still my brave mountain climber. You don't mind if I have a little fun with you in public now and then, do you? Don't worry, sweetheart. If they blow up the train, you can die with a clear conscience. <laughs> what, what about your favorite moments in Valley of the Dolls? 
The highlight is clearly, I think, the catfight scene between Patty Duke and Susan Hayward in the ladies' room. So the setup is they they have this Broadway opening night where Hayward is supposed to be the star and then Patty Duke's character shows up and she's somehow like... She's diverting the, the attention to her. Hayward goes to the ladies' room and uh, Duke follows her. And then they have a conversation which is so shady and bitchy and it's hilarious. And in the course, uh, they start to ramble, have a little cat fight, and Patty Duke's character rips off Hayward's wig. She then runs over to the toilet and she flushes it down the toilet. If it flops, I can always get you a job as understudy for my grandmother. Thanks. I've already turned down the part you're playing. Bull. Merrick's not that crazy. You should know, honey. You just came out of the nut house. It was not a nut house. Look, they drummed you right out of Hollywood. So you come crawling back to Broadway. Well, Broadway doesn't go for booze and dope. Now you get out of my way, because I've got a man waiting for me. That's a switch from the bags you're usually stuck with. At least I never married one. It's a true highlight, low light of the movie. We mentioned it before, I think the fashion, they have a fashion montage, because I think Barbara Perkins' character, she's becoming a model somehow, and then they just show some random, <laughs> she's doing commercial for a perfume or a shampoo, I don't remember. And then they do this fashion montage, which is so, it's terrible, but at the same time, a fascinating time document. Another great scene is, is Patty Duke, breaking down at the end of the movie she's completely drunk and all her friends have left her and I think Sharon Tate's character has died of cancer and whatnot and Duke is there drinking alone and she, suddenly she's in a back street somehow with some trash cans and she's screaming right. from the top of her lungs her own name like Neely O'Hara like for no reason <laughs> no reason whatsoever and she's overacting this scene she's like screaming and dying and like it's amazing Famously also the end of the movie where Barbara Parsons, she, she's getting a, a proposal from one of the many men in the movie that I don't remember the names and the faces. And she's just walking away. She's leaving the house and she's walking away from her own house in the, in the snow. All of a sudden there's snow. And she's walking on the <laughs> snow and picking up a stick and then she picks up another stick and then she's dangling with this stick and she's walking along while this terrible, terrible Dionne Warwick song, which plays randomly all over the movie, comes again, and then that's the end of the movie. So That's what that was. That's what that was, because I, I never got why she was walking in the snow again. I thought it was like harking back to the beginning where they, they played that song as well, which is 
truly atrocious. I mean, I love Dionne Warwick in almost anything she did in the 60s, but that song, oh my God. It's so annoying and it's stuck in your head forever. Absolutely. We'll give you the benefit of the doubt and we'll end our episode probably with that song. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, I think listening to us presenting our favorite guilty pleasures, we can see that they are very enjoyable stinkers. And I think let's make a, a plea at the end for guilty pleasure movies, because even if we only watch them to unwind, if only they are used to readjust our appreciation of films of all walks of life, genres and styles. I think I was always truly open to movies that were seen as bad or as trash. And I think you can only value great movies if you've been to the valley and back. And that's not only the valley of the dolls, but also the downs and further downs of many movies that were just made out of cash-grabbing intentions or maybe just love for the cinema. So anyway, Andy, thanks a lot for this enjoyable exchange of trash, slinging mud movies at each other for once. And I'm looking forward to talking to you again next time. Yes, when we will be ready for close-up. Wait.